0: welcome to kurt vonnegut radio this is gabe hudson and this is my podcast today we've got one of my favorite writers on the show dave eggers that's right dave eggers is in the house or he's in the podcast he's somewhere Anyway, he has been really a legendary support for so many writers and artists, and I absolutely would include myself in that list. He's also been a great friend for the last 25 years since he popped up on the national radar with his memoir, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, and also with the publishing juggernaut that is McSweeney's. Before we get into my conversation with the amazing Dave Eggers, let me just say, if you are not yet a subscriber to this show, Kurt Vonnegut Radio, then go over to Substack and subscribe. Anyway, this interview is to support Dave's newest novel, The Eyes and the Impossible, which is a novel for all ages, instant New York Times bestseller. And it's written in the first person from the perspective of a dog. And if you know how much I love dogs, then you will know it's the highest compliment I could give to a book to say that Dave does incredible honor to the dog spirit. Also, the reading experience is wondrous, amazing, beautiful, hilarious, and somewhat heartbreaking. But we just start talking and you'll see the conversation goes every which way. Anyway, I've included links in the show notes so you can buy it at McSweeney's.net or Bookshop. Now, this interview you're about to hear, I conducted a few days ago. Thank you to Raj and Justin at McSweeney's, and I'm releasing it in two parts. Obviously, today is the first part, and I will promise you this. You have never heard Dave Eggers talk like this about these things. These are two Old friends talking. Hello? Dave. Hey, where are you? Cape Cod. You said you used to come out here as a kid, right? Yeah, every summer. It was always different. There's a ton of sharks here now. Where I live, it's got like a British village green vibe to it. Yeah, that is very Cape cod Especially inland Cape Cod. I was trying to think the earliest days of us getting together. I remember when your memoir first came out and you were touring the country and you were in Boston. That's when I came out and met you. I'd been contributing little pieces to the website. I remember you said the nicest thing to me when I came up to you in line, you said, first of all, you go, Oh my God, I so expected you to be smaller. And then <laughs> you said, you have a lot of fans at the magazine. Please keep sending stuff. And I had never heard that. I was fresh out of MFA and, and then we did the prank the next day at one of those big, chain bookstores where I interrupted your reading. and and, What did you say? Do you remember? I have a decent recollection. Number one was like, I've never been to a literary reading before. (laughs) I'm really loving you and your book, but could you just slow down? It was peak packed in there, hundreds of people. And they were so fuming with rage every time I raised my hand. And you would immediately pause to talk to me. And then I said, listen, this has been amazing. I love it but I got to go. I didn't know it was going to (laughs) last this long. And I was like, I was thinking about getting a pet and I'm trying to decide between a goldfish and a cat. Which one do you think I should get? And finally you said, this is my friend Gabe Hudson. He's a contributor to the mag and everybody kind of cooled down. So it was a lot of fun. That's
1: what I didn't anticipate about the plants. I thought, everyone would kind of get the gag and have fun with it. I mean, sometimes we did do plants in a way where it was meant to confuse or enrage, but with those questions, you'd think people would be like, oh yeah. Or maybe they caught on after a few weeks of that and started knowing that it was going to be a happening. I thought that my history with pranks and stuff was more obvious, (laughs) but people came with a real earnestness and I didn't know that. Because I just took these events as an opportunity to do weird stuff. And it was a misalignment for a while. And then I think, you know, once I started having exotic dancers and stuff, I think people started really (laughs) catching on. And Then there would be people coming to see what would happen. But it was exhausting, though, to put those together. Because it was a wild bronco ride every time. You just didn't know what was going to happen or how they were going to react
0: or... Would it work? Would the jugglers show up, you know? And I mean, even just as like the plan, I did it again in Austin at the tail end of that first leg of your tour. I loved it so much. And you were so incredibly warm. And you seemed really happy to see a fellow person in alignment with you because I felt like the <laughs> whole world was really... Uh, obsessed with your book and with you and everything at that time. Heady times. Heady times. Beautiful times. I'm so grateful we had those. Are we already doing the podcast, by the way? Yeah, it's recording, but if you oh. want me to leave anything out, just tell me. No, just no, like... that's fine. So I just, yeah. I want to talk about your book, The Eyes and the Impossible, but I also want to ask, how are you doing these days? What's shaken in 2023 in September for you? It's college application season, so around these parts between 826 and
1: Scholar Match and my own teenagers, it's a time. And September's our summer, so it's beautiful every day, so it's very hard to be doing anything but being outside. This is our best month. It's yeah. sunny and 75, and we have a few warm nights trying to put the whole summer into one busy month, which is what we do here. Otherwise, sitting here in the McSweeney's offices, and we just a few days ago got the oversized edition of the eyes. So we made an 11 by 17 version. Wow. So it's ludicrous. It's 20 pounds. It's made of wood. Everything is the same, but just gigantic. And so I think we release that news tomorrow. Okay. We're 25 years in now to McSweeney's, and I love it. This is our anniversary year, although we came to that knowledge kind of late. I kept on remembering it and forgetting it. And I'm the only one really that's been here that long. And so I'm the only one to note that math that it was 1998 technically when we started. So we're going to celebrate it for the next couple of years. It's still my favorite thing is when we get to put people into print like we did
0: you way back when. a the- major turning point in my life. Well, was it an excerpt from Dear Mr. President? Is that... I think I sent you... So there was a moment where the New Yorker profiled you and maybe Sean Wilsey and a couple of other people who were working on the mag in the earliest days, I think. I just sent you these short shorts I had been working on. I guess they call them flash fiction now. With Robert Coover, I was finishing my MFA at Brown, and you just accepted it so fast. It was like that day, because <laughs> well, I mean...
1: I was reading the slush yeah. from Brooklyn... And I had no one else to answer to. And so if something struck me, I never like to hesitate because it's, if you make it a process, you take out all the fun. Right. So everything to me is we got this oversized edition in the office and today we've going to take a photo of it and tomorrow we'll announce it. Any waiting is yeah. to me just torturous. And you might as well be working at a data entry firm right in 1950s or something like why bother doing anything that's supposed to be kind of fun if yep. you make it unfun like <laughs> let's take this joyful artistic <laughs> endeavor and then slap so many processes and procedures on it so that we sap it of all of its spontaneity and happiness and I've been trying to always resist the, I don't know, it's not ever professionalizing the business, but there are parts of the publishing business that are slow moving, so glacial. Oh my God. So Byzantine. I don't know how people put up with it because everyone I know in the business is in it for the right reasons. Yes. They could be doing all kinds of other things. They all love books. And it's just that I am a little impatient about that, the glacial part of it. So seeing your stuff, you open an envelope. I remember where I was on my living room floor where I used to open the mail in Brooklyn. I open an envelope. If I see something, then I get so happy and excited that somebody sent me something that I like, that I would write you the next day, and then it would go into print that afternoon. Not into print, but I would lay it out that afternoon. Because I remember at one point, I couldn't wait for somebody to send me the digital file. I wanted to see it so badly that I retyped it, and I could have waited a day, but I retyped it so I could lay it out and quirk in our template. Yep. And now I'm sitting here, you were talking to Justin, who's a designer with us, and he's been in the family about 15 years. He used to run the pirate store across the street. He was an intern before that. And then there's another designer, Annie Dills here, who has that same sort of much younger just enthusiasm. She's just really excited. And I think if you're going to forego a more, I don't know, a different kind of career, maybe sometimes a more lucrative business than literary magazines, then you should be able to exult in the mayhem or joy, mayhem or delight. And what if we did this and nobody's ever done that? So let's do it.
0: That kind of thing. I remember sending in an email because for a while, it was like, we would all send in an email, dear McSweeney, something, something. And then I guess it was you or somebody else was editing, would collate, pick them for the week and then post them. And that was a major moment for all of us each week to see, get our letter again in, et cetera, et cetera. But this was a unique signal for generation X, right? We had all been living in our own little pockets around the country. Maybe the most we knew about our fellow people was the real world in TV, <laughs> And then McSweeney's emerges, and it is so different from every literary journal out there. It is so gorgeous, so funny, so witty, all the things. It was just like, God dang, thank you. Thank you that this is here, because we were all coming of age, and and your first book came out with that, and I think you were carrying issue number four around promoting it as you were promoting your book, and it was profound. In fact, I was just corresponding with Samantha Hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And she's going to come on my podcast real soon. We're going to talk about her newest book. But I just coincidences, guess who I was just corresponding with? It was you. And she was just like, I will forever be grateful on the chance that he took with me. It was life-changing as it was for me too. So it was really heady times. David Byrne coming to those parties in, the, <laughs> in Soho.
1: Just so that your listeners, I don't know if you went to this one, but I'm near it now. We did one happening in San Francisco at a place called Cell Space, which is this cavernous sort of event hall slash living environment. It was like a pirate ship and people living in the rafters and under the stage. It was really old timey San Francisco hippie space, but most of the people there were youngish and a really great place. And we had an event there where David Byrne might have been out here for his book, The New Sins that we published. Yes. I love that book. And we booked, it was, we said it would be a panel, and it was Byrne and I on the panel, And then we got an FBI agent who I don't know why or who he was. I can't remember how we found him. And then a local professor who was an expert on like Ancient Sumerian iconography, I think, wow. and we planted a bunch of people in the audience so that the Q and A, because I think we went straight to Q and A, was all directed to the Sumerian iconography experts. So that you oh. have David Burns sitting there silent for an hour because every last question was somebody like, "Well, in." AD 540, the Sumerian poet, I'm getting it all wrong, but we had all of these questions written by the expert himself beforehand so that they were really deep and so that people were like, just like in your experience, fuming and so confused. Why is it that everybody here, nobody wants to talk to David Byrne. Everyone's talking to the Sumerian professor. And then finally, at one point, we were taking relationship advice or questions from the audience. And this guy stands up and he said, what should I do? How do I tell my roommate that I'm dating his sister? He doesn't know. (laughs) Turns out that the roommate was next to him. So he was telling him by asking us this question. And it turns out that that was Eli Horowitz, who ended up being our first paid editor. I did not see that twist. Yeah. Wow. That's how we met him. And so, Was he the one that asked the question? He was the one asking the question. And I don't know if that was a gag or what. I can't remember. And then the whole thing ended, we had booked, I think, with David Byrne's knowledge, but maybe without. We had booked a band called the Extra Action Marching Band, which was a big sort of anarchic marching band. You know, tattoos and piercings and weird clothes, but drums and a majorette and everything, and they broke into the place and then just shut the whole event down by playing mm-hmm. in the crowd until mm-hmm. that it was over. So the event was crazy. And then they ended up playing with Byrne on stage many times after that. I think that's how they got to meet because they were local. But it's just one of those things where you look back and I remember thinking that each one of those events was a white-knuckle Stressful. I mean, it was fun in the moment, but like yeah. any conceptual art, it can go anywhere. Yep. And in the moment, it's very uncomfortable sometimes. And you think, "Oh my god, it's so unsettling." No one here knows what they're doing or why they're here or what's happening. You're not getting laughs every minute, and so nope. you know where yeah, you yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. But it's something that everybody would talk about. I'm sure yeah. everyone was there knows that story, whereas they wouldn't say, oh, yeah, I remember going to another dull reading. Having said that, I'm probably out there doing a lot of dull readings at bookstores now because I don't have the stomach to do these events, the happenings each time because it just, it took not a full-time helper, but back then, I forget who it would have been, maybe Diane Vadino who was helping at yeah. in these early days. Yeah. Booking the FBI agent and calling up the band. And anyway, I think there's still a place for that. I think every time back then it was getting up and reading their work for an hour straight, it was really rough times, punishing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And now we're in this sort of endless onstage conversation era where <clears throat> some of them are good. And, but I think that the format is pretty, pretty tired. And so I think it's, Time for another pivot. Maybe we need to go back to these panels with Sumerian professors.
0: I would love that. And I think that would be a nice response to this odd time, at least for me and I'm sure other folks too, coming out of the pandemic and then discovering that a whole bunch of the country just has a totally different idea of what reality is. You mean politically? Are you talking about QAnon? essentially political. I feel like everybody's brain has been mashed by the internet somehow. And so now the most absurd things might just be a reality for some citizen over there. So I actually think the marching, pierced, tattooed band with David Byrne would be an appropriate response to all this.
1: I feel like here, the most real events are... I mean, the most human and affirming events have been concerts here, especially free outdoor concerts. There's one coming up this weekend called the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. That's a pretty great one. And going to go to that. And it seems there you have people, okay, here's how we act among each other. I haven't been to any shows where they're throwing stuff at people on stage, which shows how odd we've become. But otherwise, that's, to me, the evidence okay, okay, here we are. We're communal people. We like to gather. We can share an experience and be civil and happy to be
0: around each other. Be in the grass. Put your yeah. hand, hands in feeding grass and be in that nature. Yeah, there's a festival here called Stern Grove. I don't know if you've
1: ever heard of it. Uh-uh. It's in a eucalyptus forest by nice. the ocean here in San Francisco, and it's free. And there you see the cross section of the real San Francisco where old hippies and young hippies and just everybody in between, but it's free. And it's not known by everybody. The newest transplant who lives in a tech bubble is not going to be at this thing necessarily. It's going to be old time people that like to get out and so if you ever really want to see the most San Francisco, San Francisco thing, it's the Stern Grove Festival. I'm putting that you know, on my bucket list. Since Yeah, enough. everything that you hear about San Francisco is, there's they some are, of it that's they true. They are maligning it right now. Well, I will say this. I passed a, a guy uh, on the street earlier today that was catatonic from fentanyl. And at any given time, at least 100 such people on the street, there are right now, I could go yeah. out to the tenderloin and find hundred people. And I do not understand how we've come to a place as a species where we can pass them all by right. and say that's their business to die on the street. In the most rational and humane and empathetic society, that there would be an ambulance rushing to get that person to a hospital because they are near death. Because there's people dying every day from fentanyl. So if you're taking fentanyl that you buy on the street in San Francisco in September of 2023, chances are it's a deadly form of fentanyl, deadlier than even regular fentanyl. So we know that person is possibly near death. So he's being poisoned. So why wouldn't an ambulance grab that human and say, we're taking you to the hospital. We're going to save your life because you're worth saving. Instead, the cops go by, ambulance goes by. We think it's their right to do it. We overthink it to the point where we are allowing hundreds to die on the street every year, and it's it's That's heartbreaking. It's 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 very. There are some aspects of cities like this that are so maddening, where you allow such pretzel logic to creep in where you just don't do the human thing. And so it's hard sometimes to just to live here and be like, well, what do I do? Do I have to put this person in my car myself and drive them to a hospital so that we can do the right thing? Because all the services, all the
0: agencies, all the hospitals are not. I was just talking to Merva Emery about her most recent piece in the New Yorker about mom rage. And we were just expressing our concern about children. And she was talking about how we model our behavior and communication for children. So there's something so devastating about the scenario you just described and adults and people driving by and kids are then ingesting that behavioral trait and It just, I worry about Here's an example. I used to have a car
1: that always needed its tire. I had a slow V. So it got a regular flat, right? I got really good at changing tires. And so over the years, my kids and I, we've stopped and helped people change their tire. And so everybody will do that. Oh my God. Got car trouble. I'm I'm pretty good. I can jump. I gave somebody my jumper cables the other day and we're all doing that, but we won't help the person not die on the street. And it's just, if you know, talk about Vonnegut. This was the kind of thing that he would really just illustrate or illuminate or maybe dramatize in a perfect way to just say, how do we get to that spot where it's okay to bomb Dresden, for example, and bomb, in the process, a lot of our own soldiers, but also thousands of civilians in this beautiful city, et cetera. Like, how do we get to this place where we'll stop and change somebody's tire, but we won't stop to put the dying person in our car and rush them to the hospital? And it's sheer quantity. If you lived in some small town in Tennessee and you saw that person, you'd be like, oh my God, that's Nicole's nephew. I remember him as a kid. He's in trouble. We're going to stop and rush him to the hospital. But we go by because there's 200 such people in one neighborhood in the city here we walk right by it. Woo!
0: Vonnegut was obsessed with the idea. And I know you know this because I have always known that you love him too. You actually wrote a really great piece about him for an anthology that Salon put out. A- you mm-hmm. met him. You met him. Well, can you, you tell him me about twice? Him? What? <laughs> in in New York, his
1: his oh, wife yeah. Jill Cremens yeah, yeah. reached out and she was a photographer, so she right. did a photo thing. Of me in Central Park. Wow. And she said, oh, you got to come over. And it was a lunch, I think, in their house. In the uh, 20s, I think it was. I'm dying. I love it. in the 20s. And it was me. This was like 90, no, 2002. And it was yeah. me and Colson Whitehead and, I think, John Leonard. And then there was a jazz writer. And then Vonnegut and Jill. And what was funny was Bonnegut was a little shy. He sounded like a guy that's going to dominate a room and right, right. impose himself. And he was in his 70s. And the guy, it was so funny that this jazz guy talked the entire time and dominated this room and wouldn't stop talking about his opinions about this and that jazz thing. And I don't think more got more than six words in the whole Whoa. time. And Coulson and I were just dying. Thinking, are oh, you going to let this man talk in his home? Or are you just going to tell us all of your fatuous opinions about jazz? And so that was that. But he was couldn't have been miser. And yeah, then a yeah. few months later, Jill arranged a lunch. So that I got to just eat with Kurt. And he was full of advice. And
0: Do you remember any of his and, advice?
1: I'm just curious. Well, he was actually trying to... Because we had already started 826 Valencia, and right. McSweeney's was going, and I think he was
0: trying to tell me. How about that for an old-timey radio show cliffhanger? What advice does Kurt Vonnegut give to Dave over lunch? Tune in to the next installment of my conversation with Dave Eggers to find out. Now, this is when you go to mixweenies.net or bookshop or you go to the link in the show notes and you buy dave's new wonders, amazing beautiful hilarious and somewhat heartbreaking novel the eyes and the impossible and now is when you should go to McSweeney's.net if you want to learn more about the A26 tutoring centers, or if you want to purchase the new straight hot off the press edition of McSweeney's, which is horror themed and it is edited by Brian Evanson. I will also include some links for some more of Dave's books that you can buy. If you want to support the show and sign up for the newsletter and the podcast, Kurt Vonnegut Radio, go to Substack and sign up. And if you want to help the show, you can write a review at Apple Podcast App Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can tell me how I'm doing. How am I doing? Stay safe out there, people. And I'll see you back here for the next installment of this interview with Dave Eggers. Peace.